All right, we all at Revelation 16? All right. When I looked at this, I was going to try to do verses 1 through 11. And then I decided, nah, I'm going to do verses 1 through 7. So you're getting verses 1 through 7. And, and the reason why is, you know, if you notice, this is another one of these uh, sets of seven types of judgments. We've seen two others before, the seals and the trumpets. And the way those are structured, usually they're structured in a, in a four plus three kind of format. So you'll see like the first four seals and then something will happen and you'll see the last three seals. Same thing with the trumpets. Uh, but here, this one's structured in a three plus four. So you got three bowls and then you've got this sort of... Um, these voices from heaven in verses five and six, or six and well, five, six and seven, and then you've got the next four bowls get poured out, and then the, finally the you know the seventh bowl. So we're going to look at the first seven verses. That's just a long-winded way of saying we're going to look at the first seven verses tonight. So, so starting in verse one, Revelation sixteen, John continues his vision here. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth and harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea and it became like the blood of a corpse and every living thing died that was in the sea. The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, Just are you, O Holy One, who is and who was. For you brought these judgments, for they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, Lord God, the Almighty, True and just are your judgments. So if you had to pick a theme for this passage, what would you say is sort of central to this passage? Blood, okay. What else? Death, destruction, judgment. More importantly, we see how God is described as just for doing this. Okay, And so we're going to take a little deep dive in as we go forward. But keep that thought in mind how you know, we, often, we often don't like to think of God as an angry God. But that's part of his nature. God is a loving God. He is a merciful God. He is a gracious God. But he's also an angry God. He is angry at sin. All the time. That's what Psalm 7 says. He is a God who is angry at sin. Our sin is, is rebellion against Him. And our sin brings on judgment. And we see here, as God brings judgment on the world, that it is what they deserve. That's what the angel says in verse 6. It is what they deserve. Just and true are you for doing this. And we'll look more deeply at that as we go on. But last time, again three weeks ago, we looked at verses, well, really, the whole, the whole of chapter 15. And chapter 15 marks the beginning of this fourth cycle in Revelation. 
Um, you know, again, the visions of Revelation chapter 4 through Revelation chapter 20 are broken down into seven cycles, and this is the fourth one. And this fourth cycle considers the following things, five things here. We see preparation for the final judgment in chapter 15 as the angels are called and they're gathered and they're in that heavenly temple and they're receiving these bowls that are full of the wrath of God and they, then they are sent out of the temple in heaven. They are sent out to get ready to pour these bowls upon the earth. We see these seven bowls of God's final judgment. These seven bowls are filled, as we said, with the wrath of God and they contain the end. They contain the, the fullness of His wrath as He is getting ready to pour out the final judgment here. This is also in verse six, or chapter 16. Within these seven bowls, as we will see in coming weeks, we see the final, the quote-unquote final battle at Armageddon. So we're going to finally learn about Armageddon. I've got some interesting takes on that. So we'll, well, but I'm, I'm going to hold my cards close to the vest. I'm not going to tell you what my interesting takes are because I need to kind of restudy the, what I recall from this. But we're, you know, we're going to look at that final battle, Armageddon. We're going to see the vindication of the saints. And finally, we're going to see the end. As with all of the seven cycles, each cycle ends with the end. It ends with the second coming. It ends with final judgment coming upon the people and the, and the return of Jesus Christ. Now, if you look at how this cycle is structured, it's bracketed, if you will, with the comment that these seven bowls bring the finality of God's wrath. So look at chapter 15, verse 1 again, which we saw last time, where we see, Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. And then if you flip over to verse 17 of chapter 16, as the seventh angel pours out the seventh bowl into the air, a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, it is done. So with the seventh bowl of wrath, when that's poured out, the wrath of God is done. So this cycle is bracketed with this concept that these bowls represent the final wrath of God. When they are executed, when they are poured out, it is all done. The fullness, the completion of God's wrath is uh, accomplished with the pouring out of these bowls. Again, last time as well, we saw the seven angels with the seven plagues and we noted the following things. First of all, uh, the, the idea or the concept of a plague kind of calls to mind, if you will, the plagues that we see that, are, uh, that God uh, throws or executes upon the nation of Egypt in the Exodus period. So this idea of plague, when God delivered His people from Egypt, He cast upon them ten plagues. He inflicted them with these ten plagues. And as these ten plagues were being carried out, God's judgment upon Egypt, God's judgment upon their culture, upon their gods, all of the, everything they had to do with Egypt was being judged by God. And then at the end of that, He delivers His people through the Exodus. 
We see that here as these are the seven final plagues as God will eventually bring salvation and deliverance. We also see a glimpse of heaven uh, in chapter 15 uh, as the seven angels are announced and we get a sort of a view in heaven as the church triumphant, the church that is in heaven, those who have come out of the great tribulation are in heaven and they are singing a new song. They are singing the song of Moses and they're singing the song of the Lamb. Which, in every time in Revelation, when you see the saints singing a new song, it is always a song of salvation. And again, the idea of the song of Moses points us back to Exodus 15 when after God wiped out the Egyptian army with the Red Sea, Moses is on the banks of the sea and he sings a new song. And all of Israel sings this new song of God's deliverance. How the Lord has delivered uh, his people with his mighty hand and his outstretched arm. I kind of love that metaphor. The mighty hand and the outstretched arm of God because it makes you feel like you know, God's like really kind of getting his, his hands in there to, you know, to, to save his people. Very visceral image there. And again, these are songs of salvation, songs of deliverance as the pouring out of God's wrath on the wicked marks the ultimate salvation and deliverance of God's people. And then finally, last time at the end of chapter 15, we see a vision of the heavenly temple. Again, remember the temple is where God dwells and the sort of the archetypal temple, if you will, is in heaven. It is the temple uh, according to which Moses made the earthly temple. So when Moses was given the commands to make the temple, he said, he was told, make it according to the pattern that you see. The pattern that I'm showing you, which is the pattern of the heavenly temple. So the earthly temple is just a replica of the heavenly temple where God dwells when he created the heavens and the earth. And he, as we see this vision of the temple in heaven, and we see these angels coming out of the temple to pour out God's wrath. And then as they exit, the temple is filled with smoke, kind of reminiscent of Isaiah 6 when Isaiah gets the vision of God seated upon his throne, the whole temple was filled with the smoke, which is the glory of God. So that is our recap from last time from Revelation chapter 15. And since it's been three weeks, I'll just ask, are there any questions from last time or any previous studies or anything coming into tonight that you have any questions on? Never want to be accused of not giving anybody time for questions. So I always, you can also feel free to interrupt me. I know people do that anyway, and that's fine. I have no problem with people who interrupt me. Oh, okay, Leona. Yes. So the question was, if the wrath of God is so great, didn't Jesus suffer that wrath? And the answer to that question is yes. <laughs> because that wrath that he suffered was for his people. Okay? Those whom God had elected to be in Christ. Those are the ones... He died for all his people. He died for all those whom God had given him. There's... Okay? That question, there's more to that question. Okay? Um... I mean, even that, you could say he died for all those who would believe. Okay? 
So clearly there are those who don't believe. So they are not, you know, even at that, they're not covered. Now, if Jesus actually, let me back that up. Okay, backing up. <laughs> All right. I should do like the beep, 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 right? You know, because <laughs> uh, I'm kind of a big guy, so I'm, you know, I can be like a truck backing up. Um, when Jesus died on the cross, he died to provide atonement. Okay, the atonement is the appeasing of the wrath of God. Uh, the atonement is what you see in the Day of Atonement in the Old Testament, when um, each year they would take two goats, right? They would select two unblemished goats. The high priest would lay his hands on one goat and confess the sins of the people. Then that goat would be cast out. Okay, that is symbolic of the sins of the people being, there's a fancy word for that, expiated. Okay, the word expiate means to remove or to cast out. So the sins are cast away and the goat is released into the wilderness away from the people of God. The second goat is then slaughtered and then the blood of that goat is splattered onto the, the Ark of the Covenant upon the mercy seat, which is on, you know, so you know the Ark of the Covenant, the, the chest that contains the law of God and all that stuff. So that blood is splattered on the altar and it is to signify, it is to atone for the sins because in order to atone for sin, you have to have death. You, you, there's no forgiveness of sin without the shedding of blood. Okay, the writer of Hebrews says that. No forgiveness of sin without the shedding of blood. Now in the Old Testament, way of worship is through the sacrificial system, it was all pointing forward to Christ. So through the sacrificial system of the, old, of the Jewish religion, these atonements would have to be done year after year after year. Now, they were efficacious. They were effective. They removed the wrath of God. That's what an atonement is. It is an appeasing of the wrath of God. God is angry for their sin. The substitute dies in the place of the people, and then God's wrath is appeased. Okay? Now, that's exactly what Jesus Christ does, except he does, as the writer of Hebrews says, once for all, okay? He says, you know, no longer, you know, because the blood of bulls and goats is not enough to atone for sin. You have to have the once for all sacrifice of sin. So when Jesus died, he atoned for sin. He appeased the wrath of God. So, okay, now I'm, I'm belaboring this for a reason. So Jesus Christ, when he dies, then he says the words what? It is finished. Okay, now if you were here for Sunday school, you, when we did limited atonement, you know where I'm going with this. Jesus Christ accomplished atonement. Okay, he accomplished, so in other words, he died for a group of people. He died for his sheep. John 10 talks about, says, my father has given me sheep and I lay down my life for the sheep. Okay. So if Jesus Christ made atonement for all, for every person, then no one's going to hell because Jesus Christ said it is finished. I have made atonement. If he has made atonement for everybody, then who's going to hell? No one. Right? If he appeases the wrath of God for everybody, then there's no one going to hell because he, it is finished. Which is why some will say, well, he died for all, but they have to believe in order to accept it. So in other words, then, so Jesus didn't die to 
make atonement uh, to complete atonement. He died to make atonement possible. So in other words, he wouldn't say it is finished. He would say it is available. <laughs> All right, I have made it available. Now it's up to you to believe and sort of apply that to yourself. Okay, I don't believe that. When Jesus says it is finished, he says it is finished. I have atoned. I have appeased the wrath of God for the sins of my people. Okay? So, bring it now back to your question. If the wrath of God is appeased for the people of God, then for those who are not the people of God, the unbelievers, there's still wrath. Okay? So, basically, it boils down to this. You either have Jesus atone for you, or you have to atone for yourself. Okay? The problem is, you atoning for yourself is going to be an eternity because your sins are an, an infinite uh, offense to a holy God. So you're going to be paying for your sins for quite a while. <laughs> and by quite a while, I mean like forever. <laughs> All right? <laughs> yeah, in hell, exactly. Does that answer your question? Okay. Sorry for the long-winded uh, Answer, but I felt like it needed more back backdrop. Sure. Is, is the wrath that Jesus suffered the same wrath that the unbelievers are going to suffer? All right. So the question is, is: Did the wrath that Jesus suffered on the cross is that the same as the wrath that unbelievers will suffer? Um, let's see, I think I understand what you're saying by that question. <laughs> Uh, in other words, yes, Jesus suffered the full wrath of God for our sins. Okay? So, one of my favorite verses in all the Bible is 2 Corinthians 5.21, where Paul says, He made him who knew no sin to be sin, so that we can be the righteousness of God, of Christ, or of God in Christ. So, that speaks of what I like to call the great transfer. Okay? So our sins go on him, on Jesus. His righteousness comes to us. All right, so he made, God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, Jesus was sinless, to be sin. So when Jesus is dying on the cross in the place of his people, he himself is not sinful. But then at that point, at, one po at some point upon the cross, I believe when the sky darkened and and you know, the, you know the, the sky went dark for three hours. At that point, the sins of all of God's people were placed on the shoulders of His sinless Son. And that's when Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? All right? He doesn't say Father, because at that point, the Father could not look at Him anymore. Okay? We talked about this this morning in Daniel where Daniel prays for God to shine his face again on his people, well, God took his face and he turned it away from his son. He, in a sense, he gave his son the back. I cannot look because God is, you know, his Habakkuk says, your eyes are too pure to even look upon evil. So when Christ had all of the sins of his people upon his shoulders, he was the most vile, ugly thing God could ever look upon. So at that point, he was suffering the full, bearing the full weight of the wrath of God. All right, and he did so for three hours, and for those three hours, he in effect suffered hell for us. Okay.
Now, the good news is that because he was the perfect, sinless son of God, death could not hold him, right? That's, you know, that, there's an, that, come on, that's worthy of an amen. Come on, let's be Baptist for five seconds. Death could not hold Jesus. All right, there you go. Okay. Okay, we could stop being Baptist now. <laughs> Just kidding. Um, death couldn't hold him because he was the sinless, perfect, righteous son of God. When he paid for, that, for those sins, those sins were paid for. And then he was released. Death could not hold him. He conquers death and sin for us. Right? Now the problem is if you try to bear your, the weight of your own sin, sorry, that's not going to work for you. Right? You're not sinless. You're not perfect. You're not righteous. You are a sinner at birth and you increase your guilt daily. That's what our catechism says. You're born with original sin, and then out of that original sin comes actual sins that increase your guilt every single day. So death is going to hold you. All right? If you're not in Christ, death will hold you, and will hold you forever. And you will bear the wrath of God forever, as is just for us, for those who are not in Christ. For those who are in Christ, your sins have been paid for by Christ. For those who are not in Christ, your sins, you're going to have to pay for them yourself. And we saw that in the catechism. No one you know, is going to be able to pay their own sins. You, have, you need a mediator. You need someone who is fully God and fully man. All right, let's move on, because I've got an excursus here on the wrath of God, because I want to take a few moments to talk about the wrath of God. Um, when we looked at Revelation 14, Chapter 14, verses 14 through 20. That's the passage with the wine press. And, you know, we talked about then how our modern day sensibilities don't like to think of God as wrathful. We think wrath is sort of beneath God, that God should be too holy, too pure, too good to be angry. Anger is sin, right? I mean, when we're angry, it's sinful. So if God is angry, God shouldn't get angry. Now, how many people have heard this, where you'll hear someone say, well, the God of the Old Testament, that's the angry, wrathful God, and the God of the New Testament, that's the loving, gracious God, right? The Father of Jesus Christ, right? The God of the Old Testament, he's angry. He's always angry. You know, look at Sodom and Gomorrah. Look at what he did to Pharaoh. Look what he did to, to, you know, to all the other <coughs> people who sinned. He's so angry. He loses his temper at the drop of a hat. <clears throat> Whereas the God of the New Testament, oh, he's kind. He's a loving God. He's, he's the one who forgives us our sins and lets us all into heaven. Well, suffice it to say that not only is this belief overly naive and simplistic, it's also just flat out wrong. Okay, there are no two, you know, there are no two gods, one of the Old Testament, one of the New Testament. Because let's just see how angry this Old Testament God is. Flip over to Psalm 136. Psalm 136. I'm not going to read the whole thing because it's 26 verses of which 
half of them say the same thing. Okay. Um, but I'll just read a few of them. Psalm 136, where we see, Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of gods, for His steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of lords, for His steadfast love endures forever. To Him who alone does great wonders, for His steadfast love endures forever. To Him who by understanding made the heavens, for His steadfast love endures forever. And it goes on like that. It talks about the wonders of God, the wonders of His works, the wonders of His person. And after every half phrase, you get this next phrase that follows up. For the steadfast love of God endures forever. It's almost as if you've got like a singer singing the verses, and then you've got like the, the backup singers that sing the chorus. For His steadfast love endures forever. You can almost... Kind of do it like in a little Motown thing. You get James Brown who says, you know, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. And then you got the James Brown backup singers. For his steadfast love endures forever. You know, kind of like back and forth like that. Now, if the God of the Old Testament is always angry, always vengeful, always wrathful, why would you say that his steadfast love endures forever? Well, you wouldn't, okay? Because here we see that God is a God of love whose love is forever. This word, steadfast love, uh, who has a different translation? Mercy. Mercy. Okay. That is the word hesed in the Old Testament, okay, in Hebrew. And hesed is, is a great word, okay, because it has a wide range of meanings. Mercy, steadfast love, kindness, loyalty, faithfulness. Um, it speaks of God's covenant love. It's the love that God shows to his people. It's the love that God showed to Abraham when he made covenant with him. It's the love that God shows to David. It's the love that God shows to all of his people. His mercy, his steadfast love, his chesed. It is God's special love. So you read Psalm 136 and, you, and tell me that this Old Testament God does not know how to love. Okay, his love endures forever. His mercy endures forever. And then you read the Gospels, right? And Jesus, often, when he's talking about hell, describes it as what? A place where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. A place where the worm does not die and where the fire is never quenched. Okay? He speaks of hell quite a bit. Jesus, tender, meek and mild, Jesus who loves everybody. He talks about hell. The God of the Old Testament talks about mercy and love lasting forever. So there is no, there is no God of the Old Testament, God of the New Testament. And again, the reason why we see wrath as something very ungodlike, again, is because we look at ourselves and we see, well, when I'm angry, I'm usually not angry for a good reason. <laughs> You know, I'll just speak about myself. When I'm angry, it's almost always never for a really great reason. It's almost always because I'm inconvenienced by something. I mean, just this past week, I was screaming at my printer because I would send something to the printer and it wouldn't go. It's just sitting there. It's like, cannot find the printer. I'm like, I see the printer. It's right there. Send the document to my printer and print it out. My wife's in the other room probably wondering, what is wrong with my husband? He's yelling. I'm just going to let him go. Normally, now see, 10 years ago, she'd have been like, is everything okay? What's wrong? Now she's just like, eh. 
<laughs> Say, he'll get over it. I know it's not me, so he's just yelling at something. Yeah, so a dumb printer. Never a good reason to get angry. Uh, we also see wrath as very ungodlike because we're so accustomed to living in God's grace. Right? We are so accustomed and used to grace. Because if you really think about it, what does Romans 6.23 say? For the wages of sin is what? Death. Okay. So wages, think of your paycheck, what you earn. Whenever you sin, you deserve death. You earn death. And that's each time. Okay. Each time, each sin, each stray thought, each careless word, each um, you know, evil thought in your head, each time you do something wrong, that deserves the death penalty, the divine death penalty. Now, oftentimes you see, you could read through all of Scripture and you see people sinning all the time and they don't always just die on the spot. But there are a couple of cases where they die on the spot. Think of Nadab and Abihu, Aaron's sons in Leviticus 10. Right? God, through Moses in the book of Exodus, gives very exquisite detail as to how they are to approach a holy God. This is how you do it. This is the ointment that you're supposed to use. This is the incense you're supposed to use. You're only supposed to use this in the worship of God. Don't use it for any other thing because it is holy to the Lord. And do it in this way, in this manner, and so on and so forth. Very exquisite detail. And then Nadab and Abihu, one day, there's, as they're consecrated and they're going in to offer incense, and they say, let's do it our way. So they sing the Frank Sinatra song, right? We're going to do it our way. And they light, and they light a strange fire unto the Lord. And just like that, boom, they're killed. On the spot. Instant judgment. No waiting around. No messing around. And God is sending a clear signal. It's like, if you're going to approach me in worship, you have to do so in the way that I have told you. And I made this very clear to you. He's setting an example with Nadab and Abihu. Now, some people, you know, people from our day and age look and say, wow, that's, that's harsh. It's like, no, it's not. I mean, let's forget about all the sins. Let's not forget about all the sins they committed up to that point. Now they're there, and they're told exactly how to worship God, and they don't do it that way, and they are killed on the spot. Or consider in 2 Samuel 6, the story of Uzzah. Poor old Uzzah. All right, poor old Uzzah. David is now the king, and the Ark of the Covenant is in Shiloh. And they want to bring it to Jerusalem where he's going to set up his capital. So all the priests and the Levites, they gather and they get, a brand, they get a brand new ox cart. I mean, this ox cart is fresh off the lot. It has zero miles in the odometer. They get this ox cart and it's like, look, Lord, we got you a brand new ox cart. It still has that new ox cart smell to it. We're going to put the Ark of the Covenant on it and we're going to carry it to Jerusalem, and everything's going fine. And then the ox cart hits a stone, and the ox cart starts to you know, jiggle, and the ark starts to fall, and Uzzah's like, no! You, know, you can almost see like the no in slow motion as he's going to try to catch the ark. And he touches the ark, and then Uzzah, boom, dies on the spot. And you're like, what's God? What, God, what's wrong with you? What happened? He was trying to save the ark from hitting the ground. To which you say, we reply, as R.C. Sproul likes to reply, what in Uzzah's mind made him think that the ground would defile the ark? The ground is just ground. 
What would defile the ark is Uzzah touching it. Uzzah's a sinner. He's not supposed to touch the ark. In fact, just like with Nadab and Abihu, they gave very specific instructions how you're to carry the ark, right? You're supposed to take the two poles. You're supposed to put them through the rings. And the priests and the Levites are supposed to carry the ark. They're not supposed to put it in a new... I don't care if the ox cart's new. doesn't matter. They did not do it right. And Uzzah touched the ark with his sinful, forsaken hand. Consider Acts chapter 5 with Ananias and Sapphira. Again, just sort of like with Leviticus 10. The church is new. The church is brand new. And everyone's in this kind of spirit of giving, right? Barnabas, the son of encouragement, uh, gives a large sum of money to the church. And everyone's moved to start giving. And Ananias and Sapphira say, well, hey, we want to get on this train. We want to give and we want to you know, be seen as generous people in the community. So we're going to sell some property. And then they probably like, oh, wow, we got a lot for this property. Let's hold back some of it. Let's hold back some of it. All right. And they give a portion. Now, the problem is when they gave the money, they said, we sold this land and here's all that we got for it. And when uh, Sapphira, the wife, sorry, Ananias is there. When Ananias says this is what we got for it, he dies on the spot. And then Sapphira comes in, the wife, and she sees her husband. And Peter's like, did you sell the land for such and such amount? And she's like, yes, she, yes we did. And then she dies in the spot. And again, you're thinking, God, why? Why are you killing them? They were giving money to the church. <laughs> why are you killing them? Because they lied to the Holy Spirit. They said, we received this much money, but really they received this much money plus. Now, you know, Peter says before she dies, it's like, it's, it's, your, it's your money to do with as you please. Just don't lie to the Holy Spirit. If you want to say I gave half, then just say you gave half. Don't just give half and then say you're giving the whole amount. That's the point, okay? So in anyway, I mention all these things because these are examples in which a sin is committed and it is met with immediate justice on God's part. And we don't like that. It makes us feel uncomfortable because we don't see that normally happening. But that is exactly what every sin deserves. And because God doesn't give every single sin we commit the death penalty, we've lost a sense of the severity of our sin before God. We think sin is not as bad as it is because we don't see it punished every single moment that it is occurs. So, what is sin? If I were to ask that question, how would you answer that question? What is sin? Falling short. Falling short, okay? And that is actually... I think there are two or three words used in the New Testament. One of them does mean falling short. The other one means to miss the mark. Okay? So falling short or missing the mark. Um, The Westminster Shorter Catechism has a great, nice, little, succinct answer, and I I love it so much. It's in question and answer 14 of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. It says, Sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. So any want of conformity, that's falling short, or any transgression that's missing the mark uh, of the law of God. So either you, are, you either lack conformity to the law of God or you are actually violating the law of God. So that covers sins of commission, sins that we commit, 
It also, it also covers sins of omission. Sins that are sin because of something we don't do. Okay? So failure to do the law of God or failure to not do what the law of God says not to do. And to quote again R.C. Sproul, he says, sin is cosmic treason against God. Sin is cosmic treason against God. God is our creator. He is our sovereign. He is our king. And when we sin, we are committing treason. Now, the United States even you know, gives the death penalty for, for treasonous acts, at least technically speaking. The, <laughs> yeah, then, yeah, yeah then now they fail upwards, right? It's like, oh, you committed treason. You need to be on the Supreme Court. <laughs> yeah. Um, that's why I said technically they're supposed to, <laughs> treason's supposed to be um, uh, met with the death penalty. We were created by God to glorify and enjoy Him forever, but we long ago de- deviated from that purpose, and we shake our fists at God every time we sin. Whenever we sin, we say, Our will be done instead of Thy will be done. Right? That's the Lord's Prayer. Thy will be done. When we sin, we're saying, Our will be done. The creature has revolted against the Creator, and God would be well within His rights to snuff us out each time we sin. And the fact that He doesn't is a testimony to His infinite grace, His infinite mercy, and His infinite patience. However, because just because God doesn't uh, snuff us out every time we sin doesn't mean He forgets our sin. That's another thing we fall into, right? It's another trap we fall into. You know, I, I sin, and then you're waiting for the lightning bolt to come down, and it doesn't come down. Like, oh, I must have gotten away with that. Okay, then and it emboldens you to sin more, right? But God doesn't forget. God doesn't forget. Um, Acts 17, 30, 31, when Paul's on Mars Hill, he says, your former sins he has overlooked, but now God commands every man everywhere to repent. Or you think of a passage like Romans 2, verses 4 and 5, when Paul's speaking to his Jewish readers, and he says, do you think that the patience of God means that you are no longer receiving His wrath? No. That wrath is being stored up. The patience of God is not meaning that He's forgetting your sin. It just means that that wrath is being kind of accumulated, and it's going to be released at some point unless you repent. So God's patience is meant to drive you to repentance. So God's wrath is being stored up. His anger at our sin is being held back. But that dam will one day burst. And the only way, as the Heidelberg Catechism says, to make satisfaction for our sins is either by ourselves, which is not a good plan, or by another, which is Jesus Christ. So we either pay for our sin by ourselves or through faith in Jesus Christ. But one way or the other, the wrath of God for our sin will be satisfied, either on the shoulders of Christ or we bear it for all eternity. All right, so that's what we see here in Revelation chapter 16, verses 1 through 7. The wrath of God being satisfied upon those who dwell upon the earth, the unbelievers. These bowls, they represent the full wrath of God being poured out on the wicked. Uh, on wicked humanity. And as we step through this passage, we'll also note the similarities with the plagues that we see in the, books of, in the book of Exodus. 
So the passage begins here with John hearing a loud voice from the temple in chapter 16, verse 1. He says, I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, Go and pour out your wrath, or sorry, go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. And this carries over from our passage last time as we saw the temple in heaven open and the seven angels carrying these seven bowls come forth. Now the voice, this voice is the voice of the Lord God Almighty commanding the angels now, go and pour out the wrath. The wrath that you have been given in these bowls, go and pour that out on the earth. The time has come and the wrath of God is being poured out upon the earth. The time has come for judgment and vindication to become manifest. Now there are some who would see these bowls as sort of overlapping, or to use a fancy word we've used before, recapitulating the seals and the trumpets. Uh, again, if you remember, I said that each of these cycles is like looking at the same period of time from a different camera angle. Um, but here I want to say there is good reason to see the bowls as focusing all the way on the end of that period of time. All right, so if, if everything in Revelation is looking at the church age from the period of Christ's resurrection and ascension to the, period, to the time of his return, the bowls are really you know, focusing and, and drawing the focus of the camera on the end as the final wrath of God is being poured out. Um, now, there is a continuity between the trumpets and the bowls. Uh, the trumpets and the bowls affect the same spheres of creation. Uh, if you remember when we looked at the trumpets, you know, first the, trumpet is, you know, the first trumpet you know, announces some destruction on the earth, the second trumpet on the sea, the third trumpet on the springs, of riv- you know, the springs and rivers. Um, but the major difference is that the trumpets, when they were blown, only affected one-third of everything that they touched. Okay, so it was not final judgment. It was sort of like a warning blast. Okay, you know, if you see these naval battles, right? It's like, fire a warning shot over their bow, you know. And that's kind of what the trumpets were. They were the warning shot. Okay, the bowls are universal. They affect everything. All of it is effective. It is the finality of the wrath of God. It's consistent with what we've seen um, in the cycles with the bowls containing the fullness of of God's wrath. Now, we see this language of God pouring out His wrath in other places in Scripture. Uh, You can either note these references or you can turn there with me if you'd like. But uh, in Psalm 79, we see this language of pouring out of wrath. Psalm 79 Verses 6 and 7. And really, the Psalm 79 is almost, has a very, uh, has a lot of um, uh, revelation overtones to it, if, re- if you think about it. Um, it's a psalm of Asaph, and it. Uh, it begins where he says here, O God, the nations have come into your inheritance. They defiled your holy temple. They have laid Jerusalem in ruins. They have given the bodies of your servants to the birds of the heavens for food, the flesh of your faithful to the beasts of the earth. 
They have poured out their blood like water all around Jerusalem. There is no one to bury them. So here the psalmist is seeing the enemies of the people of God wreak havoc on Jerusalem, wreak havoc on the people of God. And then in verse uh, 5, you know, kind of like what you hear in, in the seal uh, when the fifth seal is broken and the saints under the altar cry out, How long? Here the psalmist says, How long, O Lord, will you be angry forever? Will your jealousy burn like fire? Verse 6, Pour out your anger on the nations that do not know you and on the kingdoms that do not call upon your name, for they have devoured Jacob and laid waste his habitation. So again, the psalm mirrors that concept of vengeance that we see as we see the, the, the psalmist. The psalmist is crying out to God, pour out your judgment on those who are afflicting your people. So he's, it's a call for God to pour out his anger uh, because the nations have devoured Jacob. And there is an element of God's wrath that is vengeance. That's another thing we don't like to think and associate with God, right? Vengeance. Ven- but what does the Bible say, right? The Bible says... Do not pay vengeance because vengeance is mine, the Lord says. I will repay. So we're not to take vengeance. The Lord will take vengeance on our behalf. Another pouring out passage in Jeremiah chapter 10, verse 25, where here um, we see the prophet speaking for God saying, pour out your wrath on the nations that know you not. Sounds a lot like Psalm 79. And on the peoples that call not on your name, for they have devoured Jacob. They have devoured him and consumed him and have laid waste his habitation. So again, it's, this language is almost identical with Psalm 79 as we see the prophet here, Jeremiah, crying out to the Lord. And again, this theme of vengeance comes through very strong. One more passage in the book of Zephaniah. Um, Zephaniah comes after Habakkuk, I believe, and before Haggai. So if you have a new Bible, that may be in the places where the pages are still stuck together. (laughs) If you have gilding on the edges of your pages. Uh, If you have an old Bible, then don't worry about it. But Zephaniah, not Zechariah, but Zephaniah, the other Z guy. Uh, Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 8. We see here, Therefore wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day when I rise up to seize the prey. For my decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out upon them my indignation, all my burning anger. For in the fire of my jealousy all the earth shall be consumed. And here again we see the prophet in prophetic language. Uh, We see the Lord declaring that there is a day that He will rise up There is a day in which He will rise up. He will gather all the nations to Himself and then He will pour out His indignation upon them. You can turn back to Revelation 16. So now, given what we said earlier about the wrath of God, again, it sounds very ungodlike for God to take vengeance upon the various nations. Shouldn't God be above such petty emotions such as vengeance? Well, let me ask you this. If evil and wickedness go unpunished, is that a good thing? No. If God allows evil and wickedness to go unpunished, is that a good thing? Is God just if He does that? No. No. 
Again, like we said earlier, God commands us in Romans 12.19 to never avenge ourselves, but to leave it for the wrath of God. Which is then, then Paul then quotes Deuteronomy 32.35 and says, the Lord says, vengeance is mine. It is my prerogative to execute vengeance. He says, I will repay. Vengeance is God's alone. We leave vengeance to Him and trust Him to repay. And in Revelation chapter 16, God is making good on His promise to repay. That's the point. God is finally now taking vengeance upon the wicked on the earth as He vindicates His people. All right, moving on now to verses 2 through 4, as we see, we're going to see the first three bowls here. And, you know, even as I read it earlier this evening, those first three bowls kind of come in a staccato fashion. It's like, you know, bowl one, bowl two, bowl three. It's like boom, boom, boom. They come real fast, right? Um, in very little description. Just like, okay, the first bowl is out, poured out, and then the second bowl, and then the, second, the third bowl. So they, they come in relatively rapid succession. And the first bowl is poured out in verse 2. So the first of the seven angels went and poured his bowl on the earth, and harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. Now it's interesting because it says the bowl is poured out on the earth, but the effect is that those who have taken the mark of the beast get these boils and, 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 and all kinds of nasty uh, sores on their skin. So even though the bowl is poured on the earth, it affects the wicked. It affects those who have taken the mark of the beast and they get these painful sores and boils. Now we saw the mark of the beast back in Revelation 13 when the second beast, the false prophet, the one who comes out of the earth, the one who... who uh, does all kinds of lying signs and wonders to point to the first beast. The one who is now the first beast, remember the first beast represents wicked, evil governments. The second beast represents false philosophy, false religion. But the second beast points everyone to the first beast, and the second beast causes everyone to take the mark of the first beast on their right hand or on their forehead. And this mark is a sign of ownership. It means that the beast owns you. It means that the beast has control over you. The unbelievers, they just kind of give themselves up to the beast. They say, sure, give me the mark. I'll take it. They worship the beast and they worship his image. They, they engage in idolatry. They engage in all kinds of false worship. And they, they willingly take upon themselves the mark of the beast. So as a result of that, as a result of rejecting God, as a result of worshiping the beast, they have God's wrath poured out upon them. And it takes the form of harmful and painful sores. Now again, we said that these bold plagues call to mind the plagues on Egypt. And in Exodus chapter 9, in Exodus chapter 9, verses 8 through 12, this is the sixth of the ten plagues. Upon Egypt, in Exodus 6, we see the plague of the sores and boils. Sorry, Exodus 9. It's the sixth plague. Verses 8-12 through 12 here. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Take handfuls of soot from the kiln, and let Moses throw them into the air in the sight of Pharaoh. 
It shall become fine dust over all the land of Egypt and become boils breaking out in sores on man and beast throughout all the land of Egypt. So they took soot from the kiln and stood before Pharaoh and Moses threw it in the air and it became boils breaking out in sores on man and beast. And the magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils for the boils came upon the magicians and upon all the Egyptians. But the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, and he did not listen to them as the Lord had spoken to Moses. So this is a plague that came upon the Egyptians. The Israelites were spared, right? God does not commit his people to wrath. Wrath goes on those who do not know God, the Egyptians in this case. The Israelites were spared, and this suggests two things. Judgment only falls upon the wicked. God's people are spared. Now, God's people are spared because, again, the wrath of God has been paid for through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And here, judgment is not only to punish the wicked, but also to deliver the righteous. As we see in Egypt, right? These plagues are not only God sending His wrath upon Egypt, but it's also done for the purpose so that He will deliver His people from Egypt. So the plagues is eventually, when the ten plagues are done, Pharaoh finally says, Go. <laughs> we, our, our, our country is destroyed. Go. Take your people. Go and worship the Lord. Take all your people, your kids, your animals, and just get out of here. There's nothing left here. The ten plagues ended with the deliverance of God's people once God's judgment on Egypt ran its course. So that's the first bowl. The second bowl... And really, the second and third bowls are kind of, they affect both the sea and the fresh water supplies. So I'm going to look at them kind of together. So verses 3 and 4. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became like blood of a corpse, and every living thing died that was in the sea. The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. So the second angel pours his bowl into the sea. The third angel pours his bowl into the rivers and the springs. And in both instances, all the water in the sea, all the water in the rivers and springs turns to blood. In the case of the second angel and his bowl, we see that the sea became like the blood of a corpse. And everything in the sea died. Now, if again, if you remember the trumpet judgment, was a warning of the full judgment to come. Here the bull strikes all the seas, all the springs and rivers. Now here's an interesting take on verse 3, right? Verse 3, which says you know, that all the, uh, the seas became like the blood of a corpse and everything that uh, was living in it died. Um, I found this in a commentary by Dennis Johnson called Triumph of the Lamb in which he speculates... So this is speculation, okay, to, to kind of practice what I preached earlier this morning in Sunday school. Okay, I'm not saying this is gospel truth. I'm just saying I think this is an interesting idea to consider. What does the sea refer to? Remember, what, what does the sea symbolize in Revelation in particular? The people of the earth, right? It's, it's where danger, remember danger, Will Robinson... The, you know, in the Hebrew mind, the sea was everything chaotic, everything evil, everything, you know, the, the nations came from the sea, right? In, as we were going through Daniel, right, you remember uh, the visions of Daniel chapter 7 when he sees the four beasts, they come up 
out of the sea. So then these kingdoms, these Gentile kingdoms come up out of the sea. Same thing in Revelation 13. When John sees the great hideous beast, he rises up out of the sea. So, Dennis Johnson here speculates that the sea may refer to the origin of all things evil and satanic. So the sea is symbolic of chaos and danger and rebellion against God. And here, so in other words, it's, like, it's almost like God is judging the nations. That's, that's the point that Johnson's trying to make. It's an interesting idea, just food for thought. But anyway, regardless of how you look at it, the seas are turned to blood. And like the first bowl, bowls two and three are reminiscent of the first plague in Egypt, right? So is, is the first bowl is reminiscent of the sixth plague, bowls two and three are reminiscent of the first plague, which we see in Exodus chapter 7. And in Exodus chapter 7, the first plague, that's where water is turned to blood. Starting in verse 14, we see the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he is going out to the water. Stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him and take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent. And you shall say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you, saying, Let my people go. Every time I hear that, I think of Charlton Heston. Let my people go. You know, you've got to say in a Charlton Heston kind of voice, right? Sorry. Let my people go that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far you have not obeyed. Thus says the Lord, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall, be turn, it shall turn into blood. The fish in the Nile shall die, and the Nile will stink. Just like we saw in Revelation, right? It smells of corpses. The Nile will stink, and the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking water from the Nile. And the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over the rivers, their canals, and their ponds, and all their pools of water, so that they may become blood. And there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, even in vessels of wood and in vessels of stone. So Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded in the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants. He lifted up the staff and struck the water in the Nile, and all the water in the Nile turned to blood. And the fish in the Nile died, and the Nile stank so that the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile. There was blood throughout all the land of Egypt, and so on and so forth. So just as in Exodus, when all the rivers and waters of Egypt were turned into blood, so too here in the final judgment with the bulls. Water is the source of life, right? We need water. Water is the source of life, and that was struck so that it would be completely undrinkable. And we see all the seas, all the rivers turned to blood by the second and third bowls. And what affected only the nation of Egypt back in the Exodus will be universal in its scope in the book of Revelation. So those are the first three bowls. Now finally, and I'll try to finish this up quickly. Let's look at the last three verses here, five through seven. See, it was those questions earlier. You got me off track with the questions. That's okay, I don't mind. I keep the questions coming. Uh, verses 5-7, through seven, voices in heaven. So after the first three bowls of God's wrath are poured out, we hear some words now from, as we see here in verse 5, the angel in charge of the waters. I'm not sure exactly what that means. 
But this angel says in verses 5 and 6, Just are you, O Holy One, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. So this angel, whoever he is, the one in charge of the waters, he declares that God is just. Now by declaring doesn't mean he's making God just. He is recognizing the fact that God is just. He declares, he ascribes just or righteousness to God here. The word is dikaios. It's the word that we use for righteousness. It's the word we use for justice. God is just. God is within his rights. God is righteous to bring these judgments upon those on the earth, those who have taken the mark of the beast. Now we may ask the question, why is the angel even bothering to say this? Why is the angel saying you are just for doing this, God? Because as we've been seeing all throughout the study, it is the temptation as we've seen is that God is not just. God is somehow unjust for showing all of this wrath on, on poor, innocent human beings or whatever. That we are somehow owed grace and mercy. That God is unjust in judging our sins the way He does. We like to quote you know, from American jurisprudence, the, the punishment should fit the crime. right? The punishment should fit the crime. How can God judge us for eternity for sins that are temporal, for sins that aren't eternal? right? Well, because we are sinning against an infinitely holy God. God is just. But this is the mantra of the unbelieving world, right? The one who has enjoyed living uh, on the borrowed time of God's grace and mercy. God is not just. We are so accustomed to grace that when God executes justice, we cry out that this is unjust. So the angel here nips this in the bud by declaring, no, you are just, O Holy One. You are just in bringing these judgments upon the wicked. Again, justice and righteousness, as we see um, later on, are, they come from the same Greek word, the same root, These are attributes of God. For God to be just, for God to be righteous, it is part of His essential nature. So to say say it in a different way, if God were not just, if God were not righteous, then He would not be God. A classic verse on this is Deuteronomy 32, verse 5. Right past it. Or sorry, verse 4, yeah, verse 5. Deuteronomy 32, verse 5. This is the song of Moses at the end of his life. And in verse 4, Moses says, The rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are justice, a God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. So again, Moses begins this verse by saying that God is a rock. Not like Dwayne the Rock Johnson. God is the real rock. Okay, He is a rock. He is steady. He is unchanging. The, the idea of a rock connotes permanence. He is unchanging. Next, Moses says, all of his ways are justice. How many, ways, how many of his ways are justice? All of them. Right? Not... Not a single one of his ways is injustice. Everything he does 
conforms to perfect justice and equity. God is faithful and He is without iniquity, which is why all of His ways are just. And then Moses at the end says, just and upright. Is he? just, he's just saying the same things over and over again here. God is just. And again, to say God is not just is to say God is not God. Another thing that's interesting here in verse 5 is the angel says about God, the one who is and who was. Now normally... And we've seen this before in Revelation 11, but normally when we see this way of speaking about God, we usually hear it, the one who is, the one who was, and the one who is to come, right? There's always that, the one who is to come. So the one who, you know, it's past, present, and future. The one who is, present. The one who was, past. The one who is to come, future. Here the angel says the one who is and the one who was. Why do you think the angel leaves off the one who is to come? Now, I think the reason why they leave off the one who is to come, because by the time you're here in Revelation chapter 16, God is here, <laughs> right? He is the one pouring out where well, the angels are, but he is the one executing wrath and judgment. This is the end. God is coming. You don't need to say who is to come because he's here. <laughs> okay. Um, we are at the end. Now. We see why the angel declares God is just in verse 6 of chapter 16. Uh, as we see here, because again, for they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. Again, those who have taken the mark of the beast are forced now to drink blood because they have shed the blood of the saints and the prophets. I was going to read this, but I won't for sake of time. But in Matthew 21, I've referenced this before. It is the parable of the, uh, the vineyard. And it's the one in which um, Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees and He says that there's a master who let out a vineyard to servants. And then when it was time to reap the harvest, the master sends servants to the vineyard, um, the people who have rented out the vineyard to, you know, says, okay, give me what you owe me. You know, you are, you are managing my field. I want the produce. And then each time a servant is sent, those who are uh, managing the vineyard kill the servants. They abuse one, they beat another, and they kill the others. Then finally the, the owner of the vineyard says, I will send my son. And then the vineyard workers say, ah, the son is coming. If we kill him, then the vineyard will be ours. And then they kill the son, and then Jesus turns to the Pharisees and says, what will the vineyard owner do with those wicked servants? And the Pharisees are like, well... If they were me, I would slay them and, and, and cut them to pieces. And then they kind of perceived that Jesus was talking about them, right? That's the point. Okay, They have killed the servants. Uh, it illustrates nicely how the wicked have treated the righteous. They kill the righteous. right? Ever since Cain killed Abel, the wicked have sought to kill the people of God. And since the wicked have shed the blood of the saints' God in judgment, gives them blood to drink. We see this in Isaiah 49.26 as uh, you know, the prophet Isaiah says you know, that God gives the, the, the wicked blood to drink because they have shed the blood of the innocent. And the angel says at the end of that, it says it's what they deserve. Right? It is what they deserve. Again, kind of highlighting this idea that God is just. 
God is righteous to do this. God is well within His prerogatives to do this. And then finally in verse 7, we hear even more voices from heaven. As we see here, I heard the altar saying, so interesting now the altar is speaking, Yes, Lord God the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. Now John here again hears the altar saying these words, but again if you remember, we talked about this back in chapter 6 when that fifth seal was broken, John sees the martyrs under the altar, those who have been slain for their testimony, those who have been slain for their faith in Christ, their testimony to God, they are under the altar. And what do the saints under the altar say to to God? How long, right? How long until you take vengeance for us? We have been slain. We have done, you know, in a sense you could say they're, I don't want to put a complaining sound to their voice, but we have served you. We have been faithful. And here we are, we have been slain for our testimony. How long until you take vengeance? Because you told us, do not take vengeance. It is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. How long until you vindicate us? How long until you take vengeance? Those, under the mar- those who are martyred for their testimony are under the altar awaiting justice. If God is just, then He will slay these wicked for, for their lives, for, the, for what they did to them. They are awaiting vengeance. And now, their wait is over. Now they are satisfied. The long wait was not in vain as God brings the long-awaited vengeance on those who shed the blood of the saints. They will drink the blood of the, you know, the water turned into blood. And then these, the altar here concurs with what the angel says. Just and true are your judgments, O Lord. Okay. Well, that's it for tonight. Um, here we have the first three bowls of judgment and these And then these announcements that God is righteous. He is just to to do what He is doing. Um, God's anger and His wrath on sin is a righteous and just reaction to the sin of the wicked. Next time uh, we meet will be in two weeks on the 20th. And we'll look at verses 8-16. through So that will take us through the Battle of Armageddon. So next time... We're going to get the Battle of Armageddon, and I'll give you my interesting, it's not my take, but it's one that I like. Um, But I'll stop here.